Hi, I'm Gary, and this is episode 162 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be looking again at EVA England. What is it? Why is it important? And what are they doing for EV drivers? This season of the podcast is sponsored by ZapMap, the free-to-download app that helps EV drivers search, plan, and pay for their charging. Before we start, I wanted to say that following the discussion today, Warren Phillips, chairman of EVA England, has offered to be one of our guests on the season-ending roundtable episode. That's great news, and I'm looking forward to welcoming him back at the end of the season. Our main topic of discussion today is EVA England. We've covered the topic of EVA England way back in episode 87, where Jill Noel came on the episode as a representative of that organisation. But that was back in the midst of COVID, and things have moved on from there. EVA England has had a couple of personnel changes, and they brought in a full-time CEO, James Court, and a new chairman, Warren Phillips. And I'm delighted to welcome them both to the show. And I started by asking James, why he's the only full-time member of EVA England. So I think for the EVA board, you know, a huge amount, this is, I suppose, the epic COVID project that a group of very <laughs> determined uh, EV drivers took on. And I think from what they could see from some of the European partners, that this is a huge sort of growth area. And you look at sort of Norway, Austria, France, Germany, they've all got these associations uh, with thousands of members, and they do such great work in those countries. But it's almost odd that EVA England didn't exist before. So yeah, it's part of the journey for me to come on to try and grow the organisation, get more members, but also, I suppose, for the advocacy part and the media part to really be that voice. Um, so yeah, first first step, I think, was bringing me on. Uh, and then we've got a new person joining uh, in a couple of weeks' time. And we've got, you know, huge growth plans coming coming down the line. Okay, so what what specifically is your mandate slash remit? So I see it as trying to, the, the two parts. Uh, one is trying to grow and make the organization more sustainable, sustainably funded, um, and to put it on as strong a setting as possible. And the second part of that, I suppose it's you've got to build the, build the soapbox to, to, to speak from it. And that's that's the big thing for me, and I, well, I assume that's why Warren took me on, um, was to try and be that advocate in Parliament and in media. Um, and already, you know, this last year, so much has happened in this space. And if it wasn't for voices like EVA England, it would just be the manufacturers in there um, and sort of the company side of it. So, yeah, really trying to bring the driver and consumer voice into government and media. Okay, let me jump over to Warren now. Uh, now, I know you, in fact, I think both of you were at the House of Commons recently. Um, tell me about some of the lobbying efforts that you're, you're doing on behalf of EV drivers. Jane's probably better equipped to about the lobbying stuff because that's his bag. But um, the main thing, as James already, already kind of attested to, is that we, we need to be in the room, right? As EV drivers, we need to be in the room. If we're not in the room, it's literally the car manufacturers, the fossil fuel man, the fossil fuel lobbyists. And then on, shall we say, the side of the angels, as the quote goes, would be people who are the CPOs. And 
everyone has like a vested interest in that in that stuff. So being the voice for actual consumers means that hopefully what we say is understood and, and um, is actually acted upon as opposed to, you know, the usual Jedi mind tricks of the fossil fuel, you know, nothing to see here. This is not the droid you're looking for, stuff that they keep on doing to us. And I think building on that, I mean, we've seen that already in this, this sort of in the past 12 months. I mean, we've seen it for, for, for eternity, but the last 12 months since I've been at the EVA, you can see some of the maneuverings of, um, I suppose, the, the entrenched and the incumbents in this area. Um, and in areas like the consumer experience, which is going to hopefully come in and be laid in, next, uh, laid in Parliament in the next uh, couple of weeks, that's got the potential to be transformative. Open data, uh, reliability standards, all of these things are going to change the, the, the experience of EV drivers. And then you've got the bigger ticket items, I suppose, like the ZEV mandate, which is what the policy mechanisms behind the 2035 phase-out is going to be. And you know, we are in that, as Warren said, we're in the room trying to make as strong a case as possible for that. And there are you know, actors that are actively lobbying against it and trying to water it down. But it's an exciting year for us coming forward. I had a conversation with Warren sort of offline a couple of weeks ago, and he told me a, a fascinating little sort of tidbit about how you're able to gain a little bit more leverage within the room because of the impartiality that you've got. Do you want to, do you want to sort of talk around about that, Warren? You, you remember the conversation I was discussing? I think we're talking about motivations, I think, and it's the whole, um, everyone everyone in, in the room, shall we say, is, has a motivation, whether it's to continue selling fossil fuels or continue creating ICE vehicles or, you know, to continue to um, make, make a put more charges in so they can make more money by selling electricity to us, selling charging time to us. Everyone in that, those, those, the room has a, um, an, a monetary value assigned to what, why they're in the room. And it takes people like, um, James and myself who are coming in totally different. Now, James, of course, is a paid person doing this stuff, but you know, this is the fight. We're, we're fighting on behalf of the members. And as I always say, I'm not, I'm personally, I'm not the important person, but the people we represent are the important people. And the reason we get, say, a backup or even cross-party communication and interest and we get into conversations with the government and with everyone is because when people look at our motivations, it doesn't usually stand against what they're doing. So it's not like, um, uh, it, it's not profit-based. profit, profit based. It's based around the actual needs of the user. So we, so we can get support where other people won't. Where, for instance, um, a manufacturer... EV group that could be quite strong and very, you know, have lots of members and do lots of stuff, probably wouldn't get the same cross-party consideration or acceptance because they are a group for one manufacturer. Even if they're an EV or user group, it's still one manufacturer. We, we have a much wider scope and we have people, people who are people, right? This is, we're just, we're just people who drive EVs. You brought up the question there of funding. In terms of you know you're not being funded by fossil fuels etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So, what is the funding model for EVA England? Yeah, so we got a grant from uh, an NGO to try and set us up on a, and put us in a good place to start, uh, and that has definitely given us some of the freedom and the resource we need to to, to grow and also to as I said do these campaigns. We also obviously we have a membership fee. Um, it's only twenty pounds a year, 
So that will also in time be a real revenue raiser. Uh, and then you know, we, we try and do project work and you know, there are little funding pots for, for organizations like ours that we can get to. But yeah, ultimately we want to be wholly reliant on members and um, the, the income that brings. All right. Well, that sort of brings up a, a, a topic that I do want to discuss. Um, and I'm going to jump around all across the board with some of the questions I'm asking today. But if I'm playing devil's advocate here, I speak to a lot of EV drivers, especially now that there are so many new ones coming online with the increase in electric cars on the road. Most of them have never heard of EVA England. So why is that, do you think? And what steps are you taking to in- increase visibility? Um, I know it's, it's t- totally, totally true. I don't think that's the devil's advocate. I think that's just, <laughs> that's just how it is. Um, I mean, I think, firstly, I'm amazed at the work that Warren and Bridget and the rest of the board did in sort of the year and a half before I came on. I mean, it's incredible. And we already, I think just what we were talking about, just on the lobbying side of it, the media side of it, um, we already battered a sort of punch above our weight on that. I suppose for me, it's, it's, it's well, it's, it's what are you getting back for your 20 pounds? Uh, and looking around the other EV associations around the world, everyone has a slightly different model. But broadly, you know, it's you're a lobbying organisation, and people give you money. I'm trying to think of the right word, but it's it's yeah, people give it to because they believe in the cause. And sort of couple of countries like America, that's certainly true, where actually people aren't expecting anything back in sort of monetary terms, but they're happy to write sort of checks uh, over to some of the European examples where you do get sort of things back so you get discounts or you get uh, a roaming card there are things attached to your membership um we're going to try and do a bit of both uh, so we definitely want people to who see the value in us but i'm also very aware especially in this sort of in these difficult times um that you are getting value for money as well so that 20 pounds you pay hopefully will be instantly paid back by some of the offers uh, that we are working on because uh, it's so easy at the end of the month, and then we've all done it, um, which is you go down your direct debits and you just cancel, cancel, cancel the ones you don't need. I mean, we've all had to do that in the last year. So we want to be in that place where that £20, you know, you don't want to cancel it because you get, it, it pays for itself. I mean, I am uh, an EVA member, have been since the membership started. Hang on, let me just quickly check. Are you up to date? Have you paid? I hope so. I don't think I've cancelled the direct debit. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll definitely put a link in on the show notes for anybody who wants uh, membership. So they'll go straight to the website and be able to do whatever needs to be done to uh, to get that uh, that membership started. I, I can explain why historically we haven't done this stuff and why probably we're not as well known as we should be. Okay. Um, and that's probably to do with the fact when we start idea was we would set up we would gather ourselves a huge bunch of members and then we would storm parliament with our pitchforks and say you have to listen to us because we're ev drivers and we know what we're talking about and actually what happened is we set up we opened up to members and pretty much instantly like ozev and stuff just contacted us and said we're really interested to hear what you have to say please come and talk to us and so we ended up in the room doing all the work which is great because we're in there talking to all these people but all the planning we put into spending time and, you know, building up our presence on social media and going to things and, and getting people to understand who we were and what we were trying to do and what we were trying to achieve, we kind of skipped that entire piece because we were doing the work. And the work is obviously the important piece. 
So as James says, we, we punch way above our weight. You know, we're like, I'm still, I said to pinch myself when I'm in these meetings going, this is, this is mental. You know, I'm an IT guy from the South coast and I'm, I'm representing all these people. I'm doing, you know, I'm doing everything I can to make sure we do this stuff. I, I never thought it would be that fast, but that's kind of why we are where people don't know people outside the government, outside the, the lobbying stuff don't really know who we are. Uh, the, the public, the members, you know, they, we don't have enough members because we haven't got that word out there. But on the other side of it, if you look at people like the CPOs, OZEV, um, the parliamentarians and so on, they, they do know who we are. So that's kind of the mismatch we have at the moment. We need to get better at asking people to join, Warren. And, and telling people what we do because it's really hard. It's, I think one of the things is we, we don't, we don't show what we do. People don't understand how much actual work we do they can't understand it and they can't see it so there's there's two bits of it that we really are working on um, and hopefully with the new website coming out and all the bits and pieces we've got coming out in the next few months we can start on that piece and really get people to understand who we are what we do and why why that 20 pound goes so far from an ev driver point of view i think there are two key things that uh, need to be sorted and that is charger reliability and charger pricing so Talk to me about some of the efforts that you're involved in to help address these issues. So on the um, reliability, that's been one of the key things we've been doing um, as an organization for the last two years. uh, And it's been a big part of our job in the last, my job in the last year. Uh, So so making sure that government proposals were as strong and uh, as ambitious as possible. And I think that's hopefully, and I said, we've seen sort of the draft proposals. It looks as though they're going to be laid hopefully very, very soon. Um, The 99% reliability is going to be a game changer. And I think the thing with that is as well, there are lots of CPOs that are at the sort of 95 and above mark. And do we really want to go after the people sort of on 95, 96? Not yet. There are other targets because there are CPOs out there with a 70, 75% reliability. Uh, there are two in particular that are around 70 and one's around 80. That, unfortunately, the bad experiences far outweigh sort of the dozens of good ones that you have every year. And we need, to, and it brings the whole industry down. So you yeah. need to get those standards of a couple of charge point operators much higher. Uh, and that's, that's happening. Uh, on the pricing, it is... It, <laughs> There are lots of things we can do, and on the policy side, these are our campaigns. Obviously, there's going to be a general election next year. Um, I would like to see charge points being classed as as nationally significant infrastructure in the same way that forecourts are. That if petrol prices go up, MPs hear about it instantly, the Treasury feels they have to do something. We need to make sure that they are going to see, and this is obviously going to become more and more of a prevalent issue, uh, in the next decade when we are you know, going to get to that 100% new cars have to be electric vehicles. Lamppost charging charging stations, they are the next sort of petrol petrol pump and that we need mechanisms in place if we're going to get these price shocks that we've seen in, in, um, in the last year to make sure that especially people without driveways aren't overly punished. Obviously starts with the, tw- with the, with the VAT and there are, there are long-standing campaigns that are campaigning against that. 
that's one of our key asks to try and bring down that equivalency. Because people like me, I don't have a driveway, so I do rely on public uh, charges. Uh, and then going forward, there needs to be mechanisms to make sure that these price spikes don't hurt um, EV drivers. Because at the moment, ICE vehicles get a lot more attention in Treasury. Looping back onto charge reliability, how would we define that? Let me give you a couple of examples. If a unit has both CCS and CHAdeMO, and the CHAdeMO is broken, but the CCS works fine, is that deemed to be a broken charger and will therefore affect the reliability? That's my, that's my, that's my understanding of the regulations, yeah. So if a charger accepts contactless, it could be started by an app and an RFID card, but the RFID reader isn't working, but the contactless and app are working, is that a broken charger? Uh, on the payment side of it, I would assume so. I, you get, I will. I will go. I will need to go away and look at the regulations, Warren. That's my, my understanding. Is that if the payment or charges aren't working, that would be deemed as a broken charger. That's my understanding too. I think if any element of it isn't working, it's deemed as a broken charger. But it's complicated. So I haven't read all of it. Not, well, I haven't read it. I've tried to read it, but it's it's quite complicated. I'm not sure I have it all down pat yet. Um, I, uh, as far as I'm aware, yeah. If 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 the payment system doesn't work from one of the any of the payment systems don't work, and the um, uh, 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 one of the cables doesn't work, so if it's CCS or Chadamo, it doesn't work. That counts as a fail. Now, I think there might be a caveat in there if there's a back end system down on the payment side, so that you can, if you can still start the charge using a different form of payment, then it doesn't count as being down. But I, it's like I say, it's complicated. It is, and I think one of the problems that you're going to hit, speaking as a semi-impartial outsider, is if there's any wiggle room in any of the regulations, it's going to be exploited as much as possible. I mean, that, like, just take the example I've just given there. What you said to me is somebody like Instavolt, who only accept contactless charging, will not be penalised if an app doesn't work. Whereas somebody like Osprey, who have contactless and RFID card and an app, and the RFID card reader doesn't work, are going to be penalised. Even though I could go to an Osprey charger with a credit card and start it, and I could go to an Instavolt charger at the same time and start it, so I could get a charge from both machines. But because the Osprey one has an RFID card that doesn't work, and Osprey and Instavolt doesn't use RFID cards, Osprey is going to be penalised. Instavolt isn't, and there's going to be pushback on things like that. I was ever aiming for 99%. And I think it's also what, they, what the, the way they've described it to us is that it's going to be an iterative process. So if you've fallen, if you are at 98% one year, you're not suddenly going to get a massive fine. I don't think that's the intent OZEV have. I think they recognize that there is some poorly performing infrastructure and that needs to be addressed. And then for companies that are slipping below 99%, it is going to be a conversation. If whatever sort of Acme charging have a regular issue with their charging points, that is the, that this is the mechanism that allows OZEV to say, well, what's going on? If you don't address this, we're going to take action. So I think that's that's the point. And also, I think we are, we're talking very high standards, 99%. So I mean, it, it, it's, it's about these things regularly happening and having that high standard expected. So yeah, I agree with you that if people, if there are loopholes, some business is always going to attract it. But I have to be honest, a lot of the CPOs out there, you know, there are, these guys are passionate. They're all EV drivers. 
everyone I know, <laughs> why would you run a why would you own a, a, a charge point operator if you're not reviewing an EV? So that a lot of people are wanting these high standards, uh, and there are a couple of companies that need a bit of a kicking. I think this is weighted also towards contactless. So the rules and regulations are going to state contactless needs to be put on all the chargers. So if your um, if your backend app fails or your RFID card reader fails, but the contactless is still available and you can still start a charge with contactless, I think everything's weighted towards that. Whereas if the contactless is down and the other two are working, well, I think that's definitely a fail. So I think from, from my understanding of, of how it's kind of put together, the weighting is towards contactless being the sort of the sort of standard that you have to hit for these charges. Now, do we have uh, specific definitions for what defines ninety nine percent? So, is that ninety nine percent across the whole of a specific network, or is that ninety nine percent across the rapid chargers and ninety nine percent across AC chargers? So what happens if, and no names, but I think we know who we're talking about, there is a certain charge point operator that has a huge amount of AC chargers, which are generally considered to be fairly reliable, and a much smaller amount of rapid chargers, which are considered to be atrocious. Now, if 50 or 60 or 70% of the rapid chargers are not working, if you offset that or average that out across the whole of the network with all the AC charges that are working, it's going to drag the reliability percentage higher and give a false uh, impression or a false value for how reliable that network is. But it's 99% the target. So you need to, they need to be, it need to be, well, there's nowhere to go, right? If all your AC charges are 100% reliable, they work every single time and your, and your DC charges are only well, they need to be like 97, 98% reliable just so you hit the 99% mark. So you're kind of, you're kind of like, you have to, the, the, the target is nice and high for that reason. As, as I understand it, it is by your company network. So if you're named company A, it's your, it's your network. If you're named company B, it's your network. If say your company C, but actually or have two companies underneath you, each of those counts separately. Where does EVA England stand on the question of a charging czar or a charging ombudsman? So we are having these discussions. I, I, I mean, all of this, by the way, and we're waiting for Ozo to talk about who's going to be sort of the um, the, the overviewing regulator for this. Um, I personally feel that if there was like an off charge that you can get regulatory capture if there is sort of a quango that's put in charge. And I think I've seen this from my days in energy where off-gem try and do the best they can, but actually having something like an off-gem for this area means that the smaller guys, i.e. us and the consumer, um, are sometimes blocked out of that because they have these... Anytime something goes wrong, there's like, right, we're going to have a working group on this and it's going to be eight half day sessions. And all of the, well, in this experience, energy companies can afford to take sort of a couple of regulatory guys, a lobbying guy, and they sit in this room for eight working sessions. And it, a lot of people, a lot of the smaller guys and consumers don't have that resource to dedicate that. So you can get regulatory capture where those with the biggest influence or the biggest sort of books sort of can can dominate 
the proceedings. And I would be very, very hesitant for anything like that to happen. Um, on the other hand, there does need to be more focus on this. But I would still like to be, I would like to see that being done through sort of the government mechanisms, which gives it a slightly, it's slightly easier for groups to get into that and for it to be weighted. But there does need to be more attention to it. And, you know, there does, <laughs> The the, the 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 transport minister, you know, this needs to be, and the charging maybe the charging networks needs to be a, a very specific sort of named. We're very we're very keen now on naming departments on what they do. I mean, <laughs> the leveling up department is possibly one of the worst names I've ever heard of a department, but it, you know, it does what it says on the tin. Uh, maybe there does need to be a sort of an EV and charger minister as part of that portfolio. So has the recent reorganisation that happened sort of just, you know, the week that we're doing the recording, um, has the government reorganisation there affected who you're you're speaking to or uh, where you're going to focus your efforts? Speaking to civil servants, some of them, because obviously OZEB is 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 across departmental, across what what, was Bayes and then the DFT. Um, I think they're still waiting. The lead minister for OZEV is the transport minister, so that side of it hasn't changed. Uh, automotive has gone gone across to trade, uh, but that's manufacturing. I think with all of these big government re sort of structuring, it takes months to, for people to figure out. I mean, there are still departments that have been around for eighteen months that still struggle to get their own email address, and that was certainly true when DEC disappeared originally. Is that the people with DEC emails still had their DEC emails? You know nine or ten nine or twelve months later so these things move a bit slowly because you are physically talking about moving civil servants from one desk to another and it, you know they're humans they're humans too civil servants so yeah, this type of stuff takes a little bit a little bit longer uh, but our understanding is that in the main part of the job hasn't changed because the lead minister is still in tft but given that we are less than seven years away from the 2030 deadline can we afford for things to take that long to reorganise? Um, no, but it's, it's happened. I mean, why the government, with you know, what was it, maybe 18 months, maybe fewer than that on a general election, decides to go on a massive government reorganisation when it takes, you know, takes years. But then how many housing ministers have we had now? 10 in, in like, <laughs> a very short period of time. How many transport ministers? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. No, stable government would be great, Gary. That would be lovely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that would re- that would really help getting to twenty thirty <laughs> and our twenty fifty targets. Um, yeah, how many uh, how many how many how many chancellors were there last year? Well, yeah, <laughs> more, more than there should be, shouldn't they? Um, how likely is it that the twenty thirty date for banning new fossil fuel car sales will slip? Um, I I don't think it will, but on the other hand, the tar- it's the interim targets to get there and. These are all you know, carbon savings are cumulative. So if we miss our 2025 target by a little bit, then our 26 by a little bit, we're in a worse place. So you can still it will still be banned by 2030, but carbon-wise, we haven't hit the trajectory properly. So we actually have to over um, overachieve by 2030. I don't think they'll be slipping. I, I was working in COP and working in the cabinet office. I mean, the British government and especially under Boris Johnson, this was a key area and it was a key part of our COP um, asks. So, it, again, in normal times, you would suggest that a government that has gone around telling every other government in the world, you need to get to this target, this is what we're doing, you need to do it, and show real leadership on that. I, I mean, It would be 
it would be scandalous, I think, if the British government then rode back, having told the rest of the world this is what you do, and told other governments for them to slip back on their 2030 target. However, the trajectory is what's concerning me. We also have a general election coming up. So, you know, I guess, like, I'm like James, I'm, I'm um, very hopeful this is how it's going to be, but I'm also a bit realistic about the mentality of our political system. I, I do, I do think, you know, with with politics in the UK, especially at the moment, you just don't know what's going to come next. I mean, no one could have foreseen the madness of the last five years. You know, we just have to kind of, you know, we 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 believe this is going to happen. Right? We, we're we're committed to twenty thirty. We believe that the government's committed to twenty thirty. We're working in that in that manner, and we can see that there's a lot of pushback now currently by the fossil fuel lobbyists and uh, the media pushing back on that 2030 thing, trying to make out that it's impossible to do when it blatantly isn't. We know it can be done. I guess it depends on how big a political thing this becomes for the next general election as to what will happen with it. I mean, I, I think I'm personally of the opinion that it's an absolute necessity to have that date out there as a target. If their circumstances conspire where we, we have to change that to 2031, 2032, I'm not going to lose a huge amount of sleep, providing, as you say, it's not because the fossil fuel lobby have got in there and, and thrown some sort of a wrench in there to to slow things down. If there are genuine reasons why 20, it would be better to go for 2031 or 2032, I'm kind of okay with that. But I think setting a 2030 date. See, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Okay. I'm not Neither okay am I. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> yeah, that, and also, I, it's just yeah. Um, that that's just not happening. Um, so, and that's not, also that's not the the. the that hasn't been their tactics in the last year. 2030 is, is, I mean, and again, we're waiting for the ZEV mandate to be announced in the next couple of weeks. I've heard nothing about that being the, the strategy to try and move it back from 2030. Uh, what we have heard is that there could be some watering down of the interim targets together. And that's sort of, you know, that's baked in. But no, I, I think 2030 is, 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 there's not, there's not going to be any movement on that. And if there was, there'd be, you know, uproar. And uproar, by the way, in the Conservative Party. I think I heard from somebody that at the moment, if 12 MPs decide to cause trouble, then that is, that's almost their entire working majority. Um, so, and there are lots and lots of Conservative members who really feel passionately about this. Um, the, the Conservative Environment Network, which is the Tory caucus for this, is very, very strong. It's one of the largest caucuses in, in the Conservative Party. Um, so any rollback on this, I think, even within the party, would be, uh, I think they would find it very, very challenging. Basically, I think for the next 18 months, anything that hasn't been announced, if it has enough resistance, isn't going to happen. We're going to see a lot of inaction over the next 18 months. But stuff that has already been done is going to be very difficult to roll back from. Okay, moving on. Pass eighteen ninety nine accessibility standards. Have you had any input into that? Yeah, no, we were on the working groups, put in a submission, um, worked very very closely with Motability on that. We ran workshops on it. Um, it's a good start. It's a good start. Um, it's a really difficult area to nail down. Uh, and sort of the responsibility of the regulations is difficult. Is it the CPO? Is it the landowner? You know, all of these things. I think it was a very decent first stab, but let's not. I don't think anybody's thinking right. We've nailed this now. We've done it, um, and we need to do. We need to. We need to build on it because, again, 
there are, we need 100% of people driving EVs and people out there will need sort of these access, accessibility standards. I think it's also, you know, as, as somebody who's working on this says, accessibility is good for everybody. A more accessible and easy to use system doesn't just help sort of people with disadvantages or needing extra help. It helps everybody. And that's the standard we need to get to. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, that whilst the standards have been published, they're not legally binding. Is that correct? Um, well, I mean, they're, they're, a BSI, they're a BSI standard. So, I, 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 yeah, it's, that's an excellent question on sort of the regulatory aspect of it. I mean, you're not breaking the law, but it's against the regulations. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, so, 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 yeah, they're not legally binding. We know that there's a... Will they become legally binding? Um, I think there's some more work to be done to nail them down a little bit more because I still don't think they're quite strong enough. But what they do give people is the ability to, if they find charges are not up to scratch, and there's really new charges that have been are being built or have been built since the standards were announced. Um, you could find people taking the council to court over it and saying you're discriminating against us. So there were already teeth inside the discriminate the. Um, the, the acts around discrimination around, around discrimination for this stuff uh, and that's where the teeth is this is one of the areas on the consumer experience um the regulations again we're all waiting on um i am so excited about the open data side of it this is where the data that i want to get people excited about um and comes in with the uh, consumer experience i think it's going to be genuinely transformative so it's going to be live up-to-date data every five seconds and it is going to give you information on uh, where the charge point is and is it working? Those are those are pretty key things to get out of there. Um, so, with that, I'm hoping there is going to be sort of an explosion of third party apps that are going to be able to do just this type of thing and add on all of this information that you need. Uh, so, I would want every. So, obviously, there's a fantastic uh, charge safe. Um, I, this is going to be hopefully huge for them because they're going to have this database and you can see if it passes that. You can also add in, is it, is it accessible? There are other things. Actually, somebody was telling me about an idea they had and they were desperately trying to get me to do it, but I can't build an app, um, is that they want to do a app where it says great places to eat with an EV. So if you're traveling down to Cornwall and you want to have a break sort of two or three hours in, is there an app that tells you off the motorway where's a good place to eat and charge? That's going to be possible in 12 months' time. Um, there will be apps that will be able to do that. So the open source data for me is going to be huge. And also, hopefully, it means that every 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 EV driver is going to get the Tesla experience, where you're going to be able to sort of, your car is going to talk to the charger. And there is going to be sort of so much innovation in this area um, that it's going to, I, yeah, it's, Speaking to European partners on this, they're amazed and can't believe the UK has done this. Um, it's nowhere near their sort of lobbying asks. So the fact that we've done it is genuinely world leading. Um, and I think it's going to make the UK one of the best places to charge. Uh, but but, uh, but there's, there's a transition piece. So yes, it will be a really amazing place to charge. I think there's about another year and a half, two years while we sort ourselves out. Because I do, my, my worry actually is that in a year's time, a whole bunch of charges get taken offline because there's no way to get them up to that 99% target. And so they just get trashed. And and to, and to be honest, I think the industry needs a little bit of that reset. It needs that resetting for new hardware where people have put stuff in the ground and they've just kind of got it there and they've staked their claim, but aren't we really doing anything with it? And so it's kind of being left to rot. 
And now they have to have 99% uptime. So they have to put that investment piece in and do those things. So I think we could see an interesting dip in the number of charges available for a little while. But then anything new going in absolutely has to be, you know, able to take it to, to, to adhere to all the rules and regulations that we kind of have in place. I also think you're going to see a lot of charges come in just before this regulations are announced. Just people can get them in so they can squeeze them in now with the older hardware and then, <laughs> and then spend a year trying to fix everything. So, uh, so watch the space. God, you're a cynic. Uh, no, I'm a realist. Realist. Yeah, I was just going to say, is he a cynic or is he a realist? Uh, Warren, tell the listeners about some of the volunteering opportunities within EVA England, please. So, um, wow. Like, like I say, we pun- we're punching above our weight. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that we're doing. James is incredibly busy. Um, I spend, <laughs> I spend a lot of time doing this stuff and my wife isn't particularly happy about the amount of time I spend doing it, but it needs to be done. Um, literally, if you have a skill that you think, if you have a, t- if you have time, we can find a use for you. If you have time to give us, we can find ways for you to help us, whether that is helping us on social media or, um, just being available to talk to national media about EVs, you know, having a, a good core of people who understand EVs and are willing to talk on TV or into the papers and stuff would be really great. No, it won't. No, it won't Warren, we've closed like, that now. We've closed that. We got the volunteers. <laughs> oh, okay. We got the volunteers for that. We, we did a shout out to our members. Would you want to be an EV advocate? And we're going to get, I think, half a dozen members sort of a little bit media trained. Um, but um, so they can go out because we do get requests for sort of normal EV drivers because me and Warren aren't normal. Um, so yeah, we, we've got that. We've got that bank of uh, volunteers. Thank you, though, Warren. I don't want to be flooded with more. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we'll need more in the future. I'm sure I we will. It's, just, it's also fantastic for when we actually get together. Um, so for the fully charged events and other events we do, having volunteers that can help uh, on the stand and be around is great. Um, and so this is this this is a year we really want to get closer to members as well. And sort of, I think when an organisation born in COVID, you know, coming back to normality now, uh, we forget that we can actually meet in person. So if people want to sort of organise and help do meetups or do things like that, uh, we'd be very happy to try and support that and try and get more sort of weekend um, events planned. So yeah, really keen for for uh, members to um, yeah start meeting each other. But yeah, and carrying on from there, there's also things like helping us with um, content or feedback. You know, sometimes we have questions for people. Having having engaged membership who can actually respond to us quickly, who are, who are volunteering to respond to us quicker on certain things and us sending out something in the newsletter and then filling out a survey would be amazing just to be able to get quick reactions to stuff. Um, but literally, if there's things you think you can help with, and that could be anything from you know i'm an it expert or i understand finance and maybe i can help with some stuff right down to i like to make cakes can i can i meet people in a car park with my cakes and you know talk eva EV stuff to them if you want to help if you want to help us we're, we're willing to accept help james court and warren phillips thank you very much for your time today thank you that's been great that's a pleasure mate a couple of takeaways from the discussion Firstly, it's interesting that even though EVA England is a consumer-led organisation powered by EV drivers, the fact that it's not well known outside the lobbying circles it plays in means it's definitely punching way above its weight. 
Secondly, 2030 and the deadline for the banning of new internal combustion engine vehicle sales is something that they believe very strongly in, as do I, and they see no room for leeway in that date. If you want to volunteer to help, there's lots of opportunities and I've put some links in the show notes. Many thanks to James and Warren for coming on to chat. And it's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with your listeners. One of the things anti-renewable campaigners like to use as a stick to beat renewables with is the fact that things like wind turbines are not renewable or recyclable. They're generally made of reinforced fiberglass and end up in landfill after they've been dismantled, which is usually 20 or 25 years after installation. Now, Vestas, a Danish turbine manufacturer, has announced a method of recycling them. It said it's discovered a solution that, quote, renders epoxy-based turbine blades as circular without the need for changing the design or composition of blade material, unquote. That means it's renewable and recyclable. Once this technology is implemented at scale, legacy blade material currently sitting in landfill, as well as blade material in active wind farms, can be disassembled and reused. And not a moment too soon. Wind Europe expects around 25,000 tonnes of blades to reach the end of their operational life annually by 2025, rising to 52,000 tonnes by 2030. The EV Musings podcast is sponsored by ZapMap, the go-to app for EV drivers in the UK, which helps EV drivers search, plan and pay for their charging. ZapMap is free to download and use with subscription plans for enhanced features such as using ZapMap in-car, on CarPlay or Android Auto. And that's the show for today. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at MusingsEV. If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link is in the show notes. Don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis? Well, if you enjoyed this episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to coffee.com slash evmusings and you can do just that. ko-fi.com slash evmusings. It takes Apple Pay too. I've got a couple of ebooks out there if you want to read something on your Kindle. So, you've gone electric? is available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. So, you've gone renewable. is also available on Amazon for the same 99p, and it covers installing solar panels, a storage battery, and a heat pump. Why not check them both out? Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and are still listening, thank you. Why not let me know you've got to this point by tweeting me at MusingCV with the words, advocating on your behalf, hashtag, if you know, you know, nothing else. Thanks, as always, to my co-founder, Simon. You know, he always wants to make sure that as many people as possible leave behind their internal combustion engines and either swap to an EV or some sort of personal electric transportation, such as a scooter, e-bike, or unicycle. I asked him if it was easy to convince people, and he told me it felt a little like a battle between good and evil, given the immense force of the dark side of big oil. You know, the usual Jedi mind tricks of the fossil fuel, you know, nothing to see here. This is not the road you're looking for. Thanks for listening. Bye.